Hello, and welcome to another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast brought to you by Cheeky Scientist. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we will be talking to Edvard Glucksmann uh, on careers in environmental science. If you'd like to listen to the full version of this interview, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how you can become an associate and get access to our full materials and our private networking group um, specifically for helping PhDs transition into industry. If you'd like these highlights, uh, when they are released, delivered to your email inbox, just go to cheekyscientist.com and sign up under where it says start here. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Uh, today, we will be talking again about environmental science uh, with Edvard. Um, he is a chartered scientist with a broad-based educational and professional background um, at Wardell Armstrong. He, he specializes, this is where he's currently at, he specializes in environmental and social impact assessment especially in the context of lending criteria prescribed by major financial institutions. Um, he also works with the integration of ecosystem services within impact assessments and applied policy around biodiversity. If you have no idea what some of these words mean, don't worry, Edvard is going to explain them. Uh, his most recent work has focused on uh, CIS countries, in particular uh, within Kazakhstan's mining sector. Um, at the same time, Edvard is an associate fellow of the Higher Education Academy and holds an affiliation with the University of Exeter, uh, where he teaches on modules relating to sustainability, industry community relations, corporate social responsibility, and the multifaceted array of challenges faced by the Arctic region. Um, he's highly engaged you know, in, in science still. He's a, he's a great communicator. Uh, he writes extensively online, many articles uh, about this field. Um, he has worked professionally for Europe's largest organization in earth and planetary sciences. He holds a doctorate as well as an MS in zoology from the University of Oxford. Uh, and we're really looking forward to talking to Edward today. Uh, so we're going to jump in with him now. Thank you very much for being with us today, Ed. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's a very impressive background. You know, one question we always like to start with is, okay, you know, what how did you make this transition happen? What did your transition from academia, right, from getting your PhD into this, this industry career look like? Maybe you can kind of take us, take us back through um, what your transition looked like specifically for you. Well, I can. I, uh, I think that uh, I was always a little bit of an anomaly, uh, even though my, my PhD was in uh, lab-based science. I did a molecular biology PhD uh, looking at uh, the diversity of protozoa, um, very lab-focused, lab but I, I always had an interest in uh, policy and communications, and uh, wherever possible during my university career, I always tried to take on roles, either in my free time or professionally, uh, that uh, where I could explore that at the same time as doing uh, science at the bench. And... Um, I think that might stem also from the fact that uh, I did do a, a Bachelor of Arts uh, at the beginning uh, of my educational career. So I did two undergrads, moved into science, uh, ended up doing a very uh, lab-based uh, PhD. But then when I finished uh, my PhD, I wanted to uh, take that step out and see what it was like uh, outside of uh, life in the lab. Uh, and I've been working in a series of half halfway houses, let's say, uh, over the past um, uh, four or five years. So uh, I worked in communications, I worked in policy, and uh, in the end ended up in the job I'm doing now. Fantastic. And, you know, I want to 
I want to stay on this for a minute longer and talk a little bit about why. So what, why did you want to leave? Why not continue these pursuits in academia? Why did you want to leave academia for industry? I think it's, uh, it's about the subject. I think that, um, uh, I, I'm more of a big picture type of person. And, uh, uh, I knew from the beginning that I, I, I thrive doing uh, bigger picture work than working in a lab. Uh, I really enjoyed my lab work and I learned a lot and it was really going against my, in a sense, my natural instincts to work in a lab. But uh, for me, that was part of the challenge. But I couldn't see myself spending the next uh, decade or even longer doing lab work and, and continuing uh, publishing papers traditionally as you do in academia. I wanted to take a step uh, back and uh, work in a way with the same material, but at a uh, at a level uh, of policy and communications where you can uh, kind of understand the research and then work with it rather than doing the research uh, in itself. Mm. No, that and that's good for all of you to hear because many of you, uh, you know, you're, let's say your experience with academia may not have been bad; it just wasn't you knew it wasn't a good fit for you, and maybe you struggled to articulate why it wasn't a good fit and so hearing some of these things like okay you want to be involved with a larger picture you, you know you want to go beyond just publishing to to do uh you know see some of the, the work that you do take effect in this lifetime i think that's good to hear from from other people so thanks Ed. Hmm. uh so you, you transitioned into industry and so let's talk about those early days in, in uh, you know after your transition um what let's you know, let's jump to this question. What were the challenges you did face um, after you transitioned or as you started to enter in this profession in the early days? Well, I'd been in university for, for a long time because I did the two undergrads, which uh, which took seven years combined, plus master's, plus PhD. So I was, I was on about 13 years of education at that point. And uh, so any uh, transition, as you call it, uh, any change would, would have been uh, relatively uh, difficult, like taking on a new role, and uh, and just the way of uh, of working is very different once you leave uh, that academic life. Of course, I I continued on um, uh, w with a, a, a kind of half lab based uh, postdoc at one point afterwards, and and uh, that was a little bit more familiar. But in the end, the big step uh, I think was taking was, was jumping into the uh, the job I'm in right now, which is the environmental consultancy job, which I, I've been in for about a year and a half now, uh, even though I worked with the same consultancy from the academic side uh, for uh, over a year before that. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that for me, the, the, um, uh, the, the difficulty was really just getting, uh, getting used to the new way of life, if you, if you will, the nine to five part of it, uh, the having a boss uh, part of it, um, and then, uh, and then moving on from there. So I'm happy to answer any more questions uh, if you want specifics. Yeah, no, because I think this is important. We have a lot of, you know, PhDs, especially STEM PhDs, that, have, you know, I guess have a limited understanding of what options are out there in environmental science. You know, certainly when I was in grad school, it didn't even come to my mind. Um, so maybe you can just start very, very basic. Can you tell us what environmental science is? Well, uh, in my opinion, uh, it's it's very broad. So it's it's uh, it covers uh, anything from the very uh, the very nitty gritty uh, academic uh, subjects um, that I was dealing with for my my PhD, looking at uh, diversity, ecology, and evolution of specific uh, 
a species or even subspecies. Uh, but then if you step back, you can look at it and the big picture, looking at uh, uh, the ecology of, of, of ecosystems and, and uh, uh, stepping back even further, just looking at how the living uh, world functions. And I think that it's very important to understand that basically anything that's, uh, uh, that's out there you can consider part of environmental science. We used to, uh, at St. Andrews, they used to divide uh, biology or, or even the sciences actually up into uh, red uh, and green uh, and brown. So you'd have the uh, red would be the medical sciences, anything to do with the human body. Uh, green would be anything else, basically, and brown would be uh, the, chemi the chemistry part. Um, so I think that's a good way of looking at it. I would say anything that you can't call medical uh, medical research uh, would would, for, in my opinion, fit into that environmental science uh, bit. Okay, great. So that's kind of a, a basic overview. What now? What is you know consultancy in environmental science or environmental consultancy? What what you do? Maybe you can talk to us. You know, assuming somebody has no idea um, about that position at all, how how would you describe it? Well, I think it's uh, very reasonable not to have any idea because I didn't uh, before I got into it. Um, and for me, consultancy was always a bit of a, uh, a question mark. You know, what do consultants really do? I heard so much about it. You hear about the maybe the lifestyle or the money or the, the financial consultants are the ones that are, I think are the most famous, the, the people working at, at, at McKinsey or at BCG. Um, but this is very different. You, um, environmental consultancy uh, often uh, does a very similar job to what you do in academia, but very, very applied. So I would say you know 100% applied compared to uh, you know the 90% theoretical, 10% applied that you're used to in academia. So, uh, for example, at my consultancy, we're very uh, very broad based, um, but coming from a history uh, of mining and big industry. So, uh, looking at um, environmental surveys that uh, often relate to the construction or the operation of a, uh, a big uh, industrial site. And looking at all the aspects around that, uh, air quality, water quality, uh, soil, um, looking at ecosystem services, how species interact with each other, looking at social impacts around that, all of that is considered part of the, the remit uh, of this organization, but also looking at uh, geology uh, and engineering as part of that too and overlaying them. So. Um, in this case, in at uh, this consultancy and uh, consultancy, and we have many actually uh, around the world that are very similar that compete. Um, these are uh, are organizations that are very broad and very flexible because every single job we do that we're commissioned to do is completely different in a unique environment, and it could be absolutely anywhere in the world. So, have to be pretty adaptable. Okay, so how you know a lot of. PhDs, STEM PhDs, they understand, you know, what management consulting is. So how might this differ from management consulting? Well, management consulting, you're brought in uh, to an organization or uh, institution uh, in order to uh, to help them with, with their finances, with their efficiency, and with, uh, with maximizing profit. Um, this is not the case for most of the work we do. Uh, we do work uh, closely with financial institutions, but we do that for... A different reason altogether. Um, at the moment, there's a real push uh, for banks, uh, lending institutions, to reduce their risk when they make investments 
in large projects around the world. And you can stop me and ask questions uh, if this is mm. uh, if this gets complicated. But basically, uh, the idea is that uh, that nobody's going to give money uh, to a project or lend money to a project anywhere in the world that's going to risk them their reputation or their money. Uh, and that's how we deal with finances, not like uh, traditional um, uh, financial consultants who maybe help a bank out or, or, or help mm. out accounting firms. We will actually help um, any kind of uh, industry around the world deal with their environmental issues so that they are compliant uh, with standards that, uh, that their lenders around the world will, uh, will be happy with. And so um, it's part of a financial process, but it's, it's very much removed from what you would uh, consider the traditional financial consulting role. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, I mean, environmental science in general, it's a very, very hot field right now and it's expanding. So maybe you could talk it a little is. bit about the field overall and some of the trends that you see currently. Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the big buzzwords right now in the field are, uh, they relate to uh, ecosystem services. So in other words, um, what can the environment, uh, what is the environment worth uh, putting a price on what we get from the environment, the cleaning of the air, the uh, filtering of the water, things that traditionally uh, you didn't think about before. That also includes biodiversity. So if you, if you want to think about this in a very specific way, um, if you take an area uh, that, is, uh, that you want to plan to, uh, to put up uh, an industrial site, you want to maybe start a mine somewhere, looking at... Uh, what do the local rivers uh, offer the people? Do they go fishing there? Do they go swimming? Uh, you know, any kind of recreation. Are there mushrooms, berries? Uh, is there hunting going on? All of this is part of what we consider ecosystem services. So that's one very hot topic is putting a value uh, on nature and trying to make sure you minimize the risk to that. Uh, the second um, a really hot topic, uh, in my opinion, and one that's becoming huge now is uh, social impact. Uh, of industry and how that also relates uh, to the environmental sciences. So looking at how uh, people, uh, and this really, this is where my, my initial sociology degree comes into uh, uh, very helpful, is that looking at how people are affected by changes to their environment, and that is very much their natural environment. And the problem with this for the traditional lab scientists is, of course, that it involves also knowing uh, about um, the, a bit about the social sciences. You don't have to be trained in it um, like I was lucky to be at university, but you've got to know a little bit about the methods used by social scientists and the way that uh, social science thinks. Um, and this is becoming a very hot topic now, as we can see in terms of investment on uh, work dealing with uh, social impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point, right? Because some of you listening might be like, well, if I didn't get a good degree in zoology. It doesn't matter. I mean, your scientific <laughs> background gives you the tools you need to get into these positions. But just like we've talked about yeah. before, you have to develop your transferable skills. In this case, just to, you know, tend to, uh, tend to be social science skills, right? So skills that will help absolutely. you thrive in the position. And you can, you can develop these where you are now, and likely you've already developed many of them. Um, so that, okay, that we're going to, I want to come back to skills, um, but first I want to, I want to break it down. So we, we have a, a good idea. I think we've set the foundation here for what exactly it is you do. And, you know, like me, I heard environmental science when I was in grad school or whatever, but like I, you know, I don't really know what that is. I, I'm not um, in that field. It doesn't sound very glamorous, but in fact it is. Companies are paying a lot of money for these positions right now. Um, it, 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 it definitely is a, a very 
uh, quickly growing sector from the numbers I've looked at. And it's, I'm glad we talked about that. But I, I do want to know, okay, let's demystify what you do on a day-to-day basis now. You talked a little bit about it. You, you know, you're, you're a consultant, a consultant over, you know, in general, when people say consultant, they have a hard time knowing what they do. Maybe you can say, okay, this is what I would spend my time doing. Like you wake up, how do you spend your day? Maybe tell us what like an average week might look like. Hmm. Sure. Um, so uh, the beauty of what I do, I think, is that I jump between projects quite quickly. And that's something that fits me very well because I get impatient if I work on the same project for a long period of time. Um, what happens is I am, you know, I, I generally work at an office. Uh, I go in, relatively speaking, nine to five. Um, and w- what happens is uh, my company, uh, through my line managers and further up, uh, they bid for uh, projects anywhere in the world, a little bit like in academia, but on a much faster level. You put the bid in and you hear back a, a week later. And if you get that bid and, and you, you write a proposal, you put a price on it, and every hour of everybody on the team is, is, um, is uh, calculated, very different from academia and that as well. Um, and if you get that bid, then you get X number of hours to fulfill your part of the project. Um, and I'll give you some specifics. So, for example, uh, I could be told that we're working on a, a gold mine in western Kazakhstan, um, which is... Uh, just uh, it's it's already been mined for 50 years, but they are uh, redeploying uh, a piece of machinery or a new um, a part of the mine somewhere nearby. And what they need is an environmental and social impact assessment uh, of uh, that particular um, project. And so uh, we will generally uh, need, require a site visit for that. Um, and so that you prepare for the visit, you uh, understand the project as much as you can based on the paperwork, uh, based on the environmental surveys that you can get hold of from the past. Um, you really get immersed uh, in the project over a period of days, sometimes weeks. Uh, and then you go on your visit, and it's very quick. Again, the real difference uh, between this and academia is that everything is done very quickly. Um, I think people who have been in academia for a long time, as I did at the beginning, would think that this is a very superficial way of, um, of working, but this is a very practical way. You only have X number of hours to dedicate to the job, and you don't go over budget, because if you do, you, you, you blow the whole project. You, you, uh, you know, the company starts losing money. So, so uh, it's very important to uh, get everything done in that specific time frame. I would go to site, and I'm a, a social and environmental specialist. So my my role at the moment is primarily on the social side, and I will uh, go in and interview uh, anybody um, that I think is important within a community uh, and within the operator within the company about the project and about its environmental impacts and social impacts. So that involves uh, speaking with mayors, police officers, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, school teachers, farmers in the field, uh, herders, and just normal uh, local people, women's groups, and so on. Uh, in, in, in tiny villages uh, all over Central Asia and, and beyond, actually, um, and also then speak to the operator, speaking to people who work for the mining company and what their roles are and how their uh, social structures in place, who the bosses are and how if they have emergency systems in place and so on. Um, and then I'll bring all that together. I'll do that in a, period, a matter of days on site. Uh, bring it all together in a report, try to understand what, uh, what we call the baseline is like. In other words, what are things like now? Uh, and then 
um, once we know exactly what the project description is like, what they're planning to do, uh, we then uh, try to understand what the impact will be, also having talked to these people. So how will that project affect? And then we'll see in which areas there's uh, predicted to be uh, a very uh, a, a negative effect in any way. And if there is a negative effect, that's the key point. That's the real, uh, let's say, uh, the thinking part of it. We We come up with ways to mitigate, to reduce these negative impacts uh, and allow the project to go ahead, but at the same time uh, reducing negative impacts on the local populations and the environment. So a little bit of theory, a little bit of uh, traveling and field work, mm -hmm. uh, and then the final uh, number crunching at the end. No, that's great. I mean, that's a uh, <laughs> very detailed review for all of you listening. I'm, I have a very good idea now of exactly <laughs> what this kind of types of positions require. Uh, and something you said at the end with the traveling and everything, I mean, how is the... I mean, very transparently, how is the, the work-life balance for these for these positions? You um, you, t you know you mentioned how quickly things move. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about mm. that. Somebody who might have a family, uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about the traveling and so forth. Well, personally, I think it's fine, um, but I haven't been traveling as intensely as it can get. The one thing about this job that's really uh, still uh, new to me, even after a couple of years, is that. Uh, that things can move very quickly, as I said at the beginning. So uh, we can have one job or no jobs on the go, and we're just putting in bids. And within two or three days, there could be four or five uh, bids that are one, and we could be on four or five projects with back-to-back -back trips. And it can go mm -hmm. that quickly at any point of the year. Now, for me, it hasn't been a huge problem. I'm still flexible. I mean, I, I have a wife, but we travel a lot uh, anyway, and we're used to that kind of lifestyle. Uh, but a good example actually is today, because uh, today is Thursday evening uh, in the UK, and uh, I just found out a few uh, a few hours ago that I'm going to travel to Kyrgyzstan on Sunday morning, uh, and I'll be there for 10 days. It's, a, it's quite a long visit. Um, it's a, a two to three day trip uh, in each direction, so actually not that time that much time on site, but a, a quite a long trip, uh, and I just found that out. So in that case. Uh, there was a little bit of warning. I knew that there might be something coming up next week, and so I didn't book anything. Uh, but uh, there is that issue that trips could come up very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, I sometimes it can be frustrating in terms of work-life balance, but I've managed it so far. The one nice thing about it, I have to say, and this differs from company to company, is that you get uh, a time and money uh, given back to you for your trips. So, you, so if you miss a weekend because of a work trip, um, you get what's called time off in lieu, which is uh, basically holiday that you you tack on to your your normal holidays, uh, and you also get extra uh, in terms of salary when you're in the field. So that always helps. Absolutely. Well, great great insights here. So uh, for those of you listening, you have a I think you have a solid understanding uh, both at a bird's eye view and at a practical day to day of, of what the position looks like, um, some of the skills you need. We're going to talk a little bit more about skills, but if you have questions, uh, so returning to skills, we talked a little bit about some of these social science skills, transferable skills. What skills do you think the the average uh, you know STEM PhD maybe coming out of a lab, maybe they were in you know uh, immunology lab or a microbiology lab or you know not not a zoology lab or uh, anything related mm. to plants or ecosystems or the environment, what skills would they need to pick up um, to thrive in this position? Well, I think, uh, I think knowing uh, a lot of lab-based scientists and having been one and been tempted by the, the way that you have to think uh, when you're working in a lab, uh, 
the one really uh, important skill I think that you need when you when you move into a, a consultancy role is the ability to let go, uh, the ability to uh, to do something well, uh, but not be too much a perfectionist about it. It's not going to be peer-reviewed and published in, in, a, in an academic journal and stay there forever. You have to be able to do things to a, to a really uh, strict deadline that is money-driven and where you have bosses telling you you cannot spend another hour on that. It has to go in right now and getting things done in that time frame. And that's something that time and time again I see uh, the people who come over from academia, and I had this uh, inclination at the beginning, but it got uh, ironed out uh, by my boss quite quite quickly. Uh, it's that you know you just get you just get it in, and and it it doesn't have to be perfect because the, you know the people you're dealing with are not uh, you know lab based scientists experts in their field. They are companies that want to get their project moving, and they need a document and. Uh, your work w has to be at a good standard, but it does not have to be 100% perfect with the most amazing English and the best figures and so on, like you, you like you work towards in academia. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's very important for you guys to know. We, we talk a lot about results mattering. And, you know, in academia, even with even if you look at your the resumes, right, you, you think of your resume as a peer-reviewed journal, but it's not. You want to talk about results. This carries all the way through to actually day-to-day -day work and the job. you gotta, you got to get the results. you got to get things done, um, and you'll mm. continually improve, but you can't, you, know, you can't get frozen by analysis paralysis. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really important Absolutely. skill to mention, and it is a transferable skill. Um, Absolutely. Okay, so, so those skills are important. Um, Maybe you, you can talk more about skills uh, through this next series of questions where I really want to touch on, and, and we had uh, this come up in the chat box, you know, how, what is the application of the interview process, what does it look like? So let's say if you could go back in time or you see it, you've seen other PhDs get into these roles, maybe you've even helped some PhDs get into these roles. Um, what are they, you know, let's say they're networking with the right people, they get a referral, whatever it might be, what does the process look like? What, give me an example company they might, other than your own, where they might uh, apply and um, just based mm -hmm. on your experience in your own company or from what you've seen, what is that, that uh, the interview steps, whether it's a phone screen, whatever else, what does it look like? What does it look like for you? Uh, well, I was fortunate because I did try during my uh, academic years to, uh, to reach out and work with these companies. And I spent uh, about a year uh, on a postdoc where I was working in a lab, but uh, for the most part serving as a kind of uh, liaison officer for that lab and trying to set up industry partnerships with uh, the scientists in that lab. So I came across Wardle Armstrong that way, and I knew the people there. And um, uh, and what happened was somebody uh, at the company uh, left, and at that point they because I'd been speaking to them about and in the same role uh, and the skills uh, fit quite well, they asked me to come in for an interview. Um, but apart from Wardell Armstrong, there are many other environmental consultancies. Uh, an example of a very big one around the world is Mott McDonald's. Um, and uh, they uh, generally have uh, quite a lot of jobs that, um, that are uh, available. Uh, they're very large companies uh, and international. And uh, uh, you apply first, I think, by, uh, uh, by submitting a CV cover letter for those positions, and then you get interviewed. Uh, another important point, I think, with environmental con uh, consultancy is that it, it's very fluid, and um, 
that's also something that's very different from academia. People come and go really quickly. They go from company to company, role to role as they rise through the chain. And uh, that's really important because you get a, a lot of experience. Every company is different. All the jobs are different uh, in terms of the projects you do. And, uh, uh, and it's not often something that you will stay in for 10, 20, 30 years. It's something you do for a couple of years, move on to the next one and come back and forth. And I know people that were at Armstrong who have been away and are now back and have sort of climbed the ladder that way by going uh, from one to the other to the other. So you shouldn't be afraid to, uh, to try uh, switching things up now and then uh, and taking on different roles. It's a very, very fluid field and very fast moving. There's a lot of... Um, a lot of jobs that that uh, that come up based on the projects that uh, consultancies win. So uh, things can move very very quickly, and and so keep an eye on those vacancy pages. Mm. No great advice. Thank you for joining us for another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. If you're interested in attending one of these interviews live, or if you're interested in getting access to the full interview, including all of the background materials and show notes, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how to become a associate. Um, you can get on the wait list for the next association enrollment period there and learn full details about the program. It's a program specifically designed to help PhDs transition uh, into top industry positions. If you would like to see receive more of these interview highlights uh, via our podcast uh, sent directly to your email, go to cheekyscientist.com and email subscribe under where it says start here. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, until next week, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.